Every uh, single week, we're looking at a passage uh, in, in this letter written by the Apostle James, who is the, uh, the half-brother of Jesus. And I was uh, thinking this week about how James's letter fits in with kind of our cultural moment, where we are as a culture. And I, I think that on the whole, uh, in the whole letter, he's kind of addressing one of the biggest objections uh, that people outside of the church have about Christianity. And James's main point, I think in, in one way of looking at it, James's main point is that Christians are a bunch of, of hypocrites. And actually, I have a, I have a friend, and he's, uh, he's not a believer, and he grew up in a religious household, and he's always posting these things on Facebook, pointing out where, um, where these different Christians he knows, they don't, they don't follow what they say they believe. And, and I find myself often saying back to him, well, you know, James says that here, and James says that here. And James's point is that faith is, is a verb. Faith in Jesus is a verb. If you actually believe something, you don't just say you believe it. If you actually believe it, then it's going to impact your life. And so James, throughout his letter, is pointing out areas in people's lives where there's a gap between what they say they believe and what they demonstrate they believe by their actions. So this week, uh, we're, we're, like I said, near the ends of James, in, uh, in James chapter 4, verses 13, and we're going to go all the way to chapter 5, verse 6. And so if you're in your pew Bibles, that's page 856. And you can turn there now and we'll read it together. Why don't you stand when you found it? James chapter 4, beginning at verse 13 to James 5, verse 6, page 856. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while, then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourself in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Okay, so let's just admit off the start, this is kind of a crazy passage. So we're going to take some time to unpack uh, exactly what James is, is getting at. And we're going to do that by looking first at the problem that James is addressing and uh, the reason that that's a problem, uh, the way that we often make the problem worse, so we exasperate the problem, and then the solution to the problem. Okay, so, so four points. Uh, starting with the problem, at, at first blush, it seems pretty obvious, at least in the end of chapter four there, that the, James thinks that the problem uh, is, is what we would you know, today refer to as strategic planning. That James is saying, don't do strategic planning, that's a bad idea. And, and what James has basically mentioned here is, is a, a business plan. If you look at verse 13, 
Uh, James says there's, a, there's kind of a time frame, about a year. Uh, there's a revenue target. They want to be profitable within a year. There's a, an idea to go to, to this or that city and, and make money. He's, he's basically laying out, this, this person that James is critiquing is laying out a business plan. And it's a pretty bold and impressive plan. Um, and that's, that's what James seems to be condemning. But the problem is, is that it doesn't make sense for James to be defending strategic planning because the Bible is, is full of uh, admonishments for us to look ahead. Uh, in fact, on the whole, the, the Bible usually says that it's the, the person who doesn't plan that's a fool and the person who does plan is wise. So uh, consider this. Uh, Jesus was telling a story and, um, and he, said, he said this, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So Jesus is saying, if you don't plan ahead, you're going to look like a fool. Or similarly, the, the book of Proverbs says, the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Or another place in Proverbs, the wisdom of the prudent is to discern his way, but the folly of fools is deceiving. So elsewhere in his letter, James uh, looks back on the wisdom literature like, like the book of Proverbs and, and he, he uh, agrees with them. And those, that wisdom literature sees planning as wisdom and a lack of planning as foolishness. So then what is going on? If James isn't talking about strategic planning, what is he talking about? Well, let's keep reading in verse 14 and 16. Why you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. So the, the plan isn't just a plan. The plan is, is a boast, isn't it? We talked about boasting a few weeks ago when we were talking about what James was talking about using our tongue and how we use our tongue. And I want to build on that a little bit. A, a boast, in a lot of cases, is a ritual of, of sorts. People use boasts to, to kind of boost themselves up or to get in other people's heads and get them down. Um, you might have seen this recently if you've been watching the Olympics, particularly the sprints. It seems to happen a lot in the sprints. And so you have uh, Usain Bolt before his, his uh, 200 meter. He was, he was saying, uh, I'm going to break the world record and I'm going to be immortal. And it's, it's a little psychological battle that he's doing there. He's trying to build up his own confidence and, and set him off on the right track to go and, and to succeed. And he's also trying to get in the heads of everybody else and, and cement his, his figure in their minds of being unbeatable, that they're going to have to break the world record just to beat him. As it turns out, the weather was bad and he didn't break the world record. But it's a boast. It's all about just boosting himself up and getting in other people's heads. And I used to do a lot of track, obviously, when I was younger and slightly thinner. Um, and every meet, we would line up at the start line, and everybody would be talking about their times. Oh, yeah, last week at divisionals, I posted this. And, and as soon as the gun went off and they started, you looked at them, and you're like, there is no way that you ran the time that you just told me you did. But they, they did it to try and psych themselves up for running a time. They set a goal for themselves. And then instead of saying, I'd like to run this, they said, not only would I like to run this, but I can do it. Not only that. I've already done it. I've already ran this. And it's boosting themselves up and it's also trying to get in everyone else's heads. They're just trying to get in my heads, in my head. Um, sticking with athletics, there's another training method that maybe you've seen, uh, visualization. And so uh, an athlete will visualize what they want to accomplish. 
and they'll picture it in their, in their head and it'll encourage them to be able to accomplish it in real life. It sounds a little bit hokey, but it really works and it's widespread. So you have someone like Derek Druan. Did anyone see the, the Canadian high jumper? I'm using all these, okay, good, because I'm using a fair bit of Olympic illustrations and if you haven't been watching, then I might need to rewrite on the fly here. So, so if you watch Derek Duran, he has this specific ritual he goes through before he jumps and what he does is he pictures every action that his body takes to get him over the bar and he actually will do them. So he gets his feet moving and he has his eyes because he gets his feet moving and then his arm goes way up and then he arches his back and he kicks his feet out and he's all just standing there and, and we're looking at him and he looks like a fool. But in his mind, he is picturing himself going over that bar and evidently it worked because he did win gold. Uh, but this is what athletes will, will do is they will picture something, they will picture themselves ac- uh, accomplishing something in reality and it's, it's a form of, of boast. I can do this. They're convincing themselves that they can do it because they already have in their mind. It's a little different, but when I used to run, I used to tap my, my thumbs and my, my middle finger together. And we'll, we'll, it, the, amaz- the, the human mind is amazing. Even still, this kind of has an effect on me. So when I, when I would visualize uh, a, a good result or when I would finish a race and do well, I would do this and it would trap in my mind the, the emotions. It would trap the, uh, the adrenaline. It would trap all of the feelings of success and it would be triggered whenever I did this. So when I started a race, before I was going, I would, I would go like this. And what that would do, oh, sorry, it really does affect your mind, and now I can't focus. Um, it, and it, would, it would convince me that I can accomplish what I'm setting out to do because I've already done it, whether that is reality, that I've really accomplished what I'm, I'm saying, or I've just done it in my mind. And it's a form of boast. And even now, like I said, it still has an effect. But here's what I'm getting at. Me tapping my fingers, that's, that's not an act. That's me boasting. That's me saying, I can accomplish this. Bolt saying he's breaking the record. That's not just a statement or a prediction. It's a boast. And this man that James is talking about, he isn't just planning. He's boasting. And now here's the problem, is that the Bible recognizes boasting as a spiritual category. So consider this famous passage in Jeremiah chapter 9. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. This is God writing. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So God forbids people to boast in might and riches. But why? Well, it's because your boast is what gives you confidence in life. It's what you trust to hold you up. So all those triathletes and their boasts and their visualizations, their confidence then is in their ability. Now, confined to the track, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, but, But when we apply it to all of our life, what is it that we rely on to get us up in the morning? To face life, whatever its challenges there are. Uh, Where does our confidence come from? What do you tell yourself in order to get you going? What is your boast? Of course, Jeremiah, and and not just Jeremiah, but really the, the whole Bible, says that we all tend to boast in something other than the Lord. We all find something and we say, if I have that, if I do that, if I accomplish that, then I can face anything. 
and we find our deepest source of personal confidence in something other than the Lord. And that's what this man is doing that James is writing against. He's saying, I will go to the city and I will make money and then I will be something. It's, it's much more than just a plan. It's not a strategic plan. It's a boast. And it's a boast that he can make himself. He doesn't need anything else to make him. He will make himself. He's, he will be a self-made man. He can take his life into his own hands and mold it as he wants. That's what James is writing against. Now, I'm going to borrow a a phrase from another pastor and call this the life control illusion, the life control illusion. This is the illusion that if we do our due diligence, if we we do our planning, if we uh, do our strategizing, then we can control our own destiny, and then you can control your future. So the life control illusion. You see how it's it's an illusion. It's not simply just strategic planning. A strategic plan is just a plan. It's just an idea, but a life control illusion is is saying that the only factor in bringing that plan to reality is me. That there's nothing else that can affect it. It will just be me. I have complete control in bringing that plan to existence. It's saying that I am my success, that you are your success, and your success is you. Can you understand what I mean? So you are your success. If you succeed, it's all because of you which means that if you succeed or don't succeed, that's your reflection of who you are. So to me, it's interesting that James is going after this illusion because I don't know if there's a time and a culture in which this illusion has been more prevalent than in our Western society. <clears throat> it's a, a common mantra of our, of our society. You can be anything you want if you just set your mind to it. What are we told in, in almost any movie? I think maybe the clearest uh, picture of this, it's a little dated now, but the clearest picture is the end of the Back to the Future trilogy. Any Back to the Future fans? Two, three. Okay, you guys will get this. Everybody else, uh, it'll take 30 seconds. So at the end uh, of the Back to the Future trilogy, uh, Doc Brown says to, to Marty, do you remember what he said? He said, the future is whatever you make it, so make it a good one. The future is whatever you make it, so make it a good one. What he's saying is there's the only thing that affects your future is your ability. You're only limited by your own ability. And James is saying that's, that's ridiculous, that's bunk, that's an illusion. Now we know that this is an illusion, and when we stop to think about it, we realize that there is so much more in our lives that is beyond our control. But we, we ignore that. I think it's uh, Malcolm Gladwell's book, Outliers, that he kind of takes on this myth in a way. And, and Gladwell, I, I don't know if you're familiar with his writing, he's a secular intellectual and he takes all different types of evidence to show that your success really actually isn't in your control. So he makes the point that yes, uh, your aptitude is very important, you being a hard worker is very important uh, to success, but that's actually a very small part of the whole, that along with your hard work, things need to break right for you. You need to have the right circumstances. You need to, have just, you need to luck out in your timing. You need to have the right upbringing, your, your culture, your opportunities. These all play a massive role in shaping you to become who you are. And you have absolutely no control over them. So he breaks down this life control illusion. And the Bible, I think, takes it a step further. So what James is saying here in our passage is if you believe, like most Canadians do, that the future is what you make of it, that it's all up to you. I think James is saying, if, if you believe that, then you're a fool. And that's, 
That's not meant to be an insult. That's, that's a fact. The biblical fact is that if you, be, if you believe that your future is entirely up to you, then you're out of touch with reality. You're out of touch with how things really work. You're believing a myth. You're, you're, you're falling into the life control illusion. So that's, the, that's our problem, the life control illusion. But why is it a problem? I've called it an illusion. An illusion is a sleight of hand. It's being deceived by a reality that's different than what reality really is. An illusion is being blind to the, to the man behind the curtain. And if the life control illusion is no different than that. It's based on an assumption, on a fallacy, that it's possible for you to know enough about the future that you can really manage risk and that you can manage everything that's going on in your life in order to, to control it. So it assumes that you know enough about the future that your planning uh, is able to avoid all the different risks and all the different pitfalls that are ahead. And that's just not true. We just do not have that knowledge about the future. We don't know what tomorrow holds, let alone what happens years from now. And that's what James is saying. You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. But the thing is that the life control illusion, it, it, this belief that we can know our future well enough to control it through planning, it paradoxically leads us to both overconfidence and to, to underconfidence and anxiety at the same time. It creates overconfidence because we think that we can control everything. We can mitigate risk. We can... Uh, um, <clears throat> it can make us so sure that we know what we think will happen, uh, will actually happen. And, but at the same time, it will also create this underconfidence because we, we worry. What's worry? Worry is thinking that you know what needs to happen and then worrying that it's not going to happen. So thinking, okay, I know I need to ace this exam to get into this university program. And then you're constantly worrying, will, do I have the ability? Will I actually be able to accomplish that? So this life control uh, illusion, it both leads us to overconfidence and at the same time, it leads to this underconfidence and this constant worry and anxiety because you know you can't control what the happenings are, and, but you believe you have to be able to, so you're filled with fear and anxiety. And our worry is often based on our insurance that we know the future. We know what should happen. We know what tomorrow ought to bring, but at the same time, we, we don't. We don't know what will happen tomorrow. So both overconfidence and anxiety come from this uh, out-of-touch reality. You want to be able to control the future, but you don't know what's going to happen. And then James moves on into chapter 5. So we see our problem, but James doesn't immediately tell us the solution to our problem. He doesn't tell us how to make it better. And there's this very strange connection between chapter, the end of chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5. What is, what's this connection between them? It looks like two totally different subjects. In the first one, he's talking about uh, this illusion of control. And then in, the, in chapter 5, he starts talking about being rich. What's the connection between the two? It's, and they're not two completely separate things. What James is, is saying is he's applying the life control illusion to a particular life circumstance. Remember, James is always working hard at bringing faith into the practical realm. So what he's saying is, how do you know if you're buying into this idea that your life entirely depends on you? He says, look at your finances. A person who sees their success as just being from them is, or sorry, a person who sees their success as not being just from them, if they realize that all the different things that played into their success, they'll be radically generous because they see their success as a gift and they want to give back. They don't 
hoard their resources. They want to give others the opportunities that they had. But if a person holds to this idea this, that, that they are self-made, that they have this life control illusion that they have made this future for themselves, if they believe that it's just their talent and their intelligence and their hard work that's made them into who, that they, who they are, then they'll, they'll act completely different. It's, if they get success when they believe that, it's the worst thing for them. And that's what James is talking about in chapter 5, 1 through 6. And we could spend a lot of time on this, probably a whole uh, another sermon, but we won't do that because it's warm and we want to get home. But I want to just, I do need to talk about it a little bit. So there's two main ways that this a belief and a life control illusion, if we're buying into that and we have success, that it changes us. And the first one is ruthless business practices. I think that's pretty obvious here. Uh, where James is saying that if you, if you believe this, you will, have these, uh, you will fail to pay the workmen who, fa- uh, who mow your fields, and you will uh, condemn yourself and murder innocent men. He's talking about this, uh, these unfair business practices, and that makes sense, because remember, this man believes that all of the wealth and the success that he has has come because of his brilliance, his greatness. And anyone else that is, is coming along, they're just riding on his coattails. So they don't actually deserve what he's supposed to pay them because they, they're just lucky to be along for the ride. And so he engages in these ruthless business practices. Uh, the, the other thing that we see is this self-indulgence, money wastefully spent on yourself. More money spent on yourself than is, is right. And again, this makes sense because if, if all that you have earned everything that you have comes because of your own hard work and your own intelligence, then it's yours to spend how you want. So why not treat yourself well? Why not indulge? Because it's yours. It doesn't belong to anybody else. Now, I think the most frightening part of this message is in chapter 5, verse 3. And if you've closed your Bibles, you really need to open it again because it's really disturbing what James says here. He says, Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Now, obviously, this is a metaphor, but what in the world is James trying to get on? What is his metaphor? What he's talking about is he's saying that there's nothing wrong with being rich if you don't have the life control illusion. But if you do, then when success comes, that it eats your insides, it eats you away spiritually, it makes you a fool, If you're rich and you say, I'm the master of my own fate, then that has the power to disturb you. Now, a while ago, someone asked me, what what does the Bible have against hardworking people who plan ahead and and make money? The Bible seems to be anti-wealth and and anti-business success. But I don't think that's true. I think that the problem is, is that very easily business success becomes our foundation. It becomes what we trust in. It becomes what becomes our identity, really. And if we have the life control illusion, our business success is also our justification. So justification is a biblical word that just means what we use to to justify ourselves, why we exist, who we are, and to build ourselves up and give us an identity. And if we have the life control illusion, our business success becomes our justification. It's our proof of our worth as people. So do you understand what I'm trying to say? So remember, the the life control illusion states that you make your future. So how you turn out is entirely dependent on your performance. 
because you are the only one that affects your future. So that means that you are your performance and your performance is you. It defines you. It becomes your identity. So when you approach business like that, your wealth is a scorecard for who you are. Since your success is completely up to you, if you succeed, you have value. If you don't succeed, you don't have value. And that's everything is on you. Now, to be clear, James is applying this to business, but we can apply it to any different realm as well. Anything could be your measure of success. The point is that there's a direct correlation between your success and your value. Whatever that, the success is, whether it's business or academics or beauty or relationship or, or family or whatever it is that you define as success, if you believe this, you're making a direct correlation between your success and your value. And what James is saying is that these people have taken good things and they have elevated it to define their lives. They've tied their lives to them. And it causes them to act not like humans. It causes them to be selfish and it's destroying them. They have tied themselves, themselves to temporal things that fade away and when those things fade away, they will too. It's destroying them. It'll destroy them in the future, but it's even destroying them now. It's eating your flesh like fire. And given eternity, those things will completely and utterly destroy you. So let me give you an example. I said that James uh, is showing how this works when we do it with wealth. Um, I don't think that wealth is, is my issue, but a few weeks ago, uh, N- Natasha was, uh, was on the island visiting her, her parents while Owen went to camp. And her dad was, was saying, he, her dad's a retired uh, professor, and she, he was saying, there's some things I'd like to talk to Kyle about, about uh, public presentations to help him with, with teaching and with preaching. And, but I don't know if, if he's going to, to listen to me. And when she was telling me this, I thought that was really, that was kind of strange, of course. So why wouldn't I listen to, to him? And then Natasha started to tell me of a few times when she's pointed out things to me and I get my, I get my back up. And I started to think about that. So well, why is that the case? And what I, what I realized is that I need those closest to me to, to respect me. And to respect me, that means to respect what I do and to be impressed at what I, what I do and what I'm able to, to accomplish. And, and I don't necessarily have a problem with critique from people outside, but there's a certain inner circle where I need their approval to continue going. And when I don't have their approval... I will either fight against that and say, no, no, you're wrong. You do approve of me. Or, or I'll completely melt away because I have defined who I am based on that metric of success. So that's the first step. That's the life control illusion that your performance is you and you are your performance. But then there's the effect of that that has the potential to poison the relationship. Can you imagine if you have a relationship and there's an entire field of discussion, an entire area of of conversation that you can't engage in at all? Never being able to say anything about that whole subject area because the other person is just going to melt away. Natasha, don't give me those eyes. I know what you're thinking. It's fine. Case in point. But that's exactly what sin does, doesn't it? Sin destroys relationships. Sin is, is us going against God's design for us. It's going against how we were designed to flourish and exist as human people. And so sin eats away at us and it eats away at our relationships. And that's the first taste of hell. That's what James is saying 
that it eats our flesh like fire. So that's the problem. That's how we make it worse. But how do we solve the problem? Honestly, James doesn't give us a lot here, but he hints at it. So what we need to do is we need to read chapter 4 in reverse. There's a lot of hard-hitting stuff in this chapter, but I think maybe the most brutal part is chapter 4, verse 14. What, uh, why, you, why make these plans? You don't even know what will happen tomorrow. And then he says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. What James is giving this illustration, if you're from a winter climate, you know this, where you breathe out and you can see your breath, but only for a moment, and then it dissipates. And James is saying, that's who you are. That you, you, you have this, the, the length of life of this little breath. What is your life? You're just a, a mist that appears for a little while and vanishes. James is talking about the life of breath. The life of breath. Now, I know that... I, uh, that I kind of picked on Usain Bolt earlier, but I want to go back to him. Remember that he, he said his accomplishes, accomplishments were going to make him immortal. Well, how, what is the oldest sprinter that you can think of? How far back in history can you think of a sprinter that made a great name for himself? Anybody? Jesse, Jesse Owens. So Jesse Owens won in 1936. That's 70 years ago. Anybody older than that? Any track and field athlete older than that you can think of? Eric Liddell, uh, from 1924, he competed in Paris. So that's, that's older, that's 82 years ago, but would we still remember him if it wasn't for Chariots of Fire? I don't, I don't think so. How about Spyrus Lewis? Anyone know Spyrus Lewis? I had to Google his name. He won the first Olympic marathon, the premier event in 1896, and I don't even know if I'm saying his name right. I don't think that anybody, except for someone on Jeopardy, could ever quote it without. So with due respect to Mr. Bolt, you are not immortal. Now, people might remember Bolt's accomplishments 50 or 100 or 120 years from now, but that's just a flash in the pan compared to all of eternity. He's just a slightly longer-lasting vapor of air. So here's the reality. Our lives won't last forever. The wind will blow in and blow us away like it blew those papers. Our accomplishments will fade, and even the, breast, the best and, the, and the, uh, the brightest of us, people will eventually forget our names. Uh, John Green's an American young adult novelist, and he wrote a book called The Fault in Our Stars. You might have seen the movie adaptation of that. And it tells the love story of two teen- teenagers with terminal cancer. And there's this great scene when they're, they're struggling over the meaning of life in their support group. And one of them sums up the meaning of life as oblivion. And she says this, there will come a time when all of us are dead, all of us. There will come a time when there are no human beings remaining to remember that anyone ever existed or that our species ever did anything. There will be no one left to remember Aristotle or Cleopatra, let alone you. Everyone that we did and built and wrote, sorry, everything that we did and built and wrote and thought and discovered will be, will be forgotten and all of this will have been for naught. Maybe that time is coming soon, and maybe it's millions of years away. But even if we survive the collapse of our sun, we will not survive forever. There was a time before organisms experienced consciousness, and there will be a time after. And if the inevitability of human oblivion worries you, I encourage you to ignore it. You know, that's what everyone else does. So that's a secular look at the problem, the life of breath. Everything we know is fleeting. And it'll either, that knowledge, we either have to ignore it or it'll push us into the ground. But it's actually a very biblical sentiment. 
Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, let them that weep as uh, weep be as though they weep not. Let those who rejoice be as though they rejoice not. Let those that buy things be as those who po- possess them not. For the fashion of this world, this, the life of this world is passing away. So you may be a great humanitarian, you might be a genocidal maniac. You might be the world's fastest person and you might, but you might run like an elephant smells, which is poorly. Um, but in the end, nothing you do will make a difference. And nobody will be around to remember anything you do. Which means, unless there's a God in eternity, nothing you do has any meaning at all. And why doesn't it have la- any lasting meaning? Because this world is passing away. It's vanishing like your breath on a cold day. All of us are. Not just our world, all of us as individuals, we're all decaying. That's what happens from day one on. And no amount of strategic planning, no amount of hard work, no amount of due diligence is going to stop it. It may delay it a little bit, but it's not going to stop it. So what are we supposed to be thinking about? What is James saying? James is saying, instead of saying, oh, if only we could go to this or that city and we could make money or we could buy this or that or only if I was this size or that person would marry me or whatever it is that we convince ourselves is important. Instead of saying that, James is saying, ask yourself, what can I do that will be around 8 billion years from now? What, what can I do for someone that will have an effect 8 billion years from now? Well, didn't we just say that kind of impact is impossible? No, it's impossible in the life of breath, that fleeting life that we have. But the answer to the life of breath is the breath of life. So when Jesus commissioned his disciples in John chapter 20, he said, I'm sending you into the world as the Father has sent me. And then he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. What's the word spirit? Then in the, the, the Greek, spirit is, is wind or breath. And so Jesus is giving them the breath of God. Now in In Genesis, God gave Adam and Eve the breath of life, but that was just the physical breath. That was was the life of breath, and that is fleeting. That's that's decaying. That's going away. It's running down. But But what Jesus gave to his disciples, the people who believed in him, and he breathed on them, he put God's breath into them. He gave them an inner nature that lasts forever. He gave them the breath of life. But how do we do that then? How do we... How do we take our life from being this, uh, this life of breath to be turned into the permanence of the breath of life? How do we achieve that permanence? You need to read James 4 backwards. So everything that James says in chapter 4, he's telling us not to do. So he's, he's implying that you should do the opposite. And the person who did that completely and perfectly was Jesus. So who was it that lived without boast or arrogance? Who was it that did not spend his life building his reputation? Most of all, who was it that said, as James says, the Lord wills, not my will, but yours be done. Here's the man, the eternal king, the one who had the the whole world, the one who the whole world was about, the one who was in absolute control, but he willingly gave up control. He He became dumb, like a dumb sheep led to slaughter. When they arrested him, he did nothing. At his trial, he said nothing. On the cross, they taunted him. They, they said, if you're who you say you are, show us your control, take control of your life and come down. And he did nothing. Why? 
because he was in our place. He was dying for our sins. And here's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came and lost control of his life so that you could know that everything is in control. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came and lost control of his life so that you could know that everything is under his control. So listen, we, I know we have things going on in this church. I know I have things going on in, in my life and we don't have a clue what's going to happen. We might think we do sometimes, but we don't have a clue what's going to happen. We don't know what God's doing sometimes. And we feel that acutely. But one thing we do know, we're assured of his love. And we know that because he became human. He came to earth, he lost control, and he was destroyed. Let me quote Tim Keller here. You're never going to be able to take your mitts off your life and admit you don't have control until you see him losing all control to save you. Why did the eternal become mortal like a puff of air that could be snuffed out? The eternal became mortal so that we mortals could become eternal, so we could last. Sin was eating out our insides like a fire, but Jesus put the fire out. Don't you want to boast that it will enable you to face anything in spite of the fleetingness of your life? Don't you want a boast that gives you the power to face anything, no matter, even when you're faced with oblivion? Boast in nothing but the cross of Christ. Boast in nothing but the love of Christ. It's the only thing that's solid enough. Then you'll be able to face anything. And then you'll be able to handle suffering because you'll know that you don't know what's coming. Because you'll know that you're not in control, but he is in control. That he's lost control for you. He's lost control for me. You'll be able to take your money and spend it on other people instead of hoarding it to yourself. You'll be able to take your time and spend it on other people instead of hoarding it for yourself. And don't we want to be, don't we declare that that's the type of people we want to be like? And the only way we can do it is if we look at what Jesus has done for us and that he lost control so that we know that he's still in control.